Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano. Today, we have another crossover episode with our sister show, Asian Enough. Why all the crossover episodes as of late? Because Asian Enough is cool. Duh. In this episode, hosts Jenny Amato and Tracy Brown talk to actor, model, and dancer, Lena Bloom. I'm one of your hosts, Tracy Brown. And I'm your other host, Jen Yamato. Over the past few years, Lena has been the first to break ground in many categories. In 2017, she became the first trans woman of color to grace the pages of Vogue India. In 2019, she became one of the first trans women to walk Paris Fashion Week. And most recently, Lena broke barriers again as the first trans cover model for Sports Illustrated's swimsuit issue. We talk with Lena about her own ties to ballroom, her Black and Filipina identity, and reuniting with her mom after decades apart. Here's our conversation with Lena Bloom. Hi, guys. How's it going? Mabuhay. So you were the cover model on the Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover. It's a famous pop cultural institution, but it's one that's historically been seen, I think, in the mainstream through a straight male gaze. And in this year's edition, there was like an intentional effort to celebrate an inclusive spectrum of women. And I think I, I understand you shot it before you learned you made the cover, along with tennis player Naomi Osaka and rapper Megan Thee Stallion. But what were your hopes going into the shoot and what did you want to convey in the images? Well, anything that I do since being in these spaces of representation is fairly new to our ecosystem all around the world. I think for me, it has to be some type of cultural shift. It has to be part of something that is not just based around vanity or gluttony. It has to be something that has a message. And yes, I do have a bathing suit on. Yes, I'm in my most feminine form. But what I stand for and why I was chosen to be part of the issue and then be on the cover was because of what I want to do with everything I do in the fiber of my being. Um, in the past, a lot of the models are beautiful, yes, but what is their story? What are they fighting for? What are they really rooted in that makes them who they are? And the reason why I've gotten up to this point is not because of me just being beautiful. It's me fighting the system. It's me um, being blacklisted. It's me saying, no, I don't want to do this. It's, it's saying it's not what you say yes to, it's what you say no to that builds character. So what we're doing and what I do with this issue is to invite people to think differently. And that's why it was such an important moment putting a trans woman on the cover because we are every single day being brutalized, murdered, sexualized, harassed, unsolved cases of trans women, especially of color, being murdered in America. So when that is happening in our society, it's imperative and it's our responsibilities to have moments like this. And tell us a little bit about the thought going into that particular shoot, even what you wanted to present in your wardrobe choices. How were you bringing these thoughts of your communities into the presentation of what you wanted to put into those images? I was very, very strict with how I wanted to be portrayed. Um, I told them straight up, I don't want to do any two pieces. I only want to stick strictly to a one piece. I think a one piece for me is a safe zone. It allows me to just not 
think about anything. It allows me to literally enjoy myself at a beach. It allows me to literally say, I belong at the beach. I'm going back to the beach and I want to be comfortable in this element. And this is a political message. And I think for me, it was just like, yes, we have a swimsuit on, but it's just a trans woman that often is not even at the beach because we are not allowed in those spaces. So this was a means to say, girl, get your one piece, whatever your situation is, whatever part of the binary and the gender perspectives you're in, Girl, just put on your swimsuit and come to the beach and let's just enjoy just having a good old time. And if you want to wear one piece or a two piece, that's your prerogative. But for me, everywhere I go, this is just on my terms and this is what I want to do. And they did not police that. They embraced it. Mm. I love that. Well, you you mentioned just now how everything you do is very intentional. And earlier this year, your feature film debut, Port Authority, was finally released. Um, it was at Cannes a few years ago. It was the movie that launched your acting career. And since then, you've landed more roles. You've been on Pose. Um, and it all happened because you were discovered and cast from the ballroom community. But I guess my question is, why acting? It's just another space where there is no representation for Asian folk, for Black folks, for Black, Asian, Blasian folk, for Filipino folk, for strong, passionate women. Everything I do has to invoke some form of passion, some form of emotion. And we're creating something, you know what I mean? It's, it's something that the world has not seen before. It's something that the world hasn't really tapped into. I wanted to be a part of something that was literally centering around something that was real to me and real to society that has been here for the past like five decades. Ballroom culture was created by black and brown feminine energies in society that was not allowed to go in those white spaces that we created ourselves. So this is something that I was just basically saying, I'm a giant standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm coming from trans communities of people that lived and breathed and dreamed. And that's what I want to be a part of. Even the mere fact that Port Authority was your first film ever, it's such a beautiful performance that you give. It's such a beautiful depiction of family in the character of Y and her brothers. How personal did that depiction feel to you at the time? How much of yourself and your own experience did you feel like you could inject into that project? I am from the ballroom community. Ballroom community is my safe haven when I had nowhere else to go to learn about who I am and where I come from. This was the place that gave me the true curriculum that I needed to survive, not just in the community, but also out in the real world. The casting director by the name of Damon Boyd, who is also a trans man, Asian, also was looking for people that was actually from the community. We wasn't looking for actors to act like they're from the community. They were looking for people that was directly from the projects, directly from the cracks and the alleyways of the experiences that we come out at five o'clock in the morning after the ball is over and it's the neck of sunrise. And you don't often see that in Pose. You know, a lot of those people are not from the ballroom community. This movie is literally coming from the ballroom floors with scrapes and bruises to a movie set. That is the future of film. That is the future of culture. And that is why it was so important for me to be a part of this. And it's so crazy because the director said no to me four times before she said yes. So she was not saying yes to just someone. She was looking for a vessel of change that could tell a story that was from the community and 
not only did we work together, but I hired other trans people from the community with the levels of expertise that I did not have to be on set because there was no other trans bodies on set that I felt like I could talk to, I can confide with, and also I could be protected by. So it's not just me being this lead female, it's about the people also working beside you and coming up behind you and standing right next to you. Yeah, you mentioned bringing on other people from the trans community onto the Port Authority project. Can you explain a little bit more what you meant and who you brought on and why? Yes, so um, this was my first film and I was going in with not that much experience. It was imperative for me to hire um, an acting coach or someone to really navigate these scenes with me and to make sure I gave the best performance possible. Yari Jones, very amazing, intelligent trans body um, who is also Afro-Filipino, I hired her to make sure that when I was on set, I was prepared. And also when I was challenging the perspectives of these people in these positions of powers, like Martin Scorsese, like Danielle Lezovitz, who are two amazing creatives, I wanted to make sure that if I was saying that this is not real and raw and accurate to a community that I come from, I had someone to support me and back me up to say, this is authentic, this is real. And just a second guess, you know what I mean? Like when I'm in these spaces, when I'm on these shoots, when I'm in these films, when I'm in these spaces that are really centered around white folks trying to tell our stories, there's not a lot of protection. And that's important. If we're going to tell a story about trans bodies, let's hire not only people in front of the camera, but behind the camera that can also enjoy this moment and get this experience also. We've already covered that you're the first in so many categories Um, So you're, you know, you're at this point, you're pretty much known as someone who's breaking barriers. But uh, we'd like to rewind, like in your own words, who is Lena Bloom? Lena Bloom is, Lena Bloom is a cultural shift that you didn't know that you were waiting for. Like I said, I'm a giant standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, I'm coming from a legacy of an ancestry that is truly powerful from all the way from General Santos, Mindanao to, you know, West Africa. So I'm a powerful combination of a lot of things in the world that has been ostracized. And it's important for me to take all those things and put crowns on them and lead with that and know that my ancestors breathe through me. So that is me. That's what I came here to do. And I think... For me, I didn't want to just say yes to everything. It was about what is this? How can I help? How can I make history? And not only that, but how can I also live forever? And what that Sports Illustrated cover does and what me being in Port Authority does and making history of that is it allows my story and the story of where I come from to live forever. So it's important for me to leave something back on this earth. You mentioned just now, right, the story of where you come from. That's what we want to know. Like, we know you grew up in the south side of Chicago um, and that you fell in love with dance. But, like, what are the most vibrant memories from your childhood? I just remember a young black and brown child being sensitized by everything around me. I was raised on the south side of Chicago. Chicago is considered Chirac, the murder capital of America. My dad was in the military. My mom was deported when I was two years old. So I'm constantly being sensitized by every single space I walk into because I'm feminized, because I'm ablation, because I live in segregated areas. So I stand out because I'm super ultra feminine and I'm super, um, I enunciate and um, I look at things in a very detailed way. So. I just remember just always not taking things for granted as a child. And my dad will always tell me, like, 
where you come from in the world, people are starving, people are fighting and wanting to be seen. And you live in a place where you can do anything that you can ever imagine, whatever your dreams are made of, you can bring them to life. So I remember dancing in my great grandmother's um, living room and she used to be a dance teacher and she taught young black and brown bodies on the south side of Chicago, young women about their bodies and how to dance and how to maneuver themselves to understand their bodies. Um, and she had two daughters who both were dancers. One was a famous dancer who danced with Sammy Davis Jr., um, also danced for the Lover Bulls, also went to Vegas to dance. Um, she had a child named Lee Howard, who is a famous tap dancer. So dance is literally something that I was kicking and screaming as a child coming out the womb. You know, um, I knew that I could not live a normal life. I had to do things different. I could not go to prom. I could not get a boyfriend the same way that other friends were getting a boyfriend. I just had to do things differently. And that isolated me and introverted me into my own mind. And it made me kind of somewhat military-ish because my dad was military. So I like was, was super laser focused because I knew I was born in a time where I could not um, be my most 100% self. So I had to create a world that I could. Well, even at a young age, right? Like when you started dancing, for example, what did you feel like expression through movement and, and dance did for your sense of self at that young age? I think in the school system, you know, the curriculum is set up for you to not listen to yourself. The curriculum is set up to listen to other perspectives and is typically of white perspectives of history. There is no Asian history in history class. There's no African history besides, you know, Black History Month. You know, there's no trans experiences in those history books. And everything about me was about leading with emotion and what I felt in the back of my neck and what I felt in my soul. And I, like I said, I was a very sensitive child. So books and textures and emotions and certain voices had me hypersensitized. You know, it's like, when you are blind or when you're deaf, everything else is extremely heightened. So for me, um, listening to a song wasn't just listening to a song. I'm like trying to bass into why was the song created and what was the emotion behind the song and where did the people come from that made the song? So I was really into researching all the things in society and that's how I learned. That's how I taught myself. That's how I learned how to survive. That's how I learned how to understand my instincts and how to also prepare for things that I knew that I was going to go through because I was so unique and different. Um, so it was just, it was just hearing things and responding and responding with empathy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about your dance career and the progression, you know, like I'm curious, like why don't we know, you know, Lena Bloom, the professional dancer, compared to like model, actress, activist first? My mom was deported when I was a child. So I was constantly looking for fragments of motherly energy, strong energy, feminine energy that was maternal to me. And I adopted dance and music to um, fill that void. And um, it was just my way to not think about my mom. It was a way for me. I mean, when you're in the entertainment business, you have all these momagers, all these like moms showing up to like classes and they're all in the waiting area. I didn't have that. So all I had was that music in that dancing room to say, this is my haven. This is what I hug. This is what I, I feel. And um, I was in these dance classes and I was always kind of the only one that was from the rainbow experience. And it was all these women saying, 
why are you here? You, you Boys are not supposed to dance or whatever you are, you're not supposed to be dancing. Why? Because there's no representation anywhere on a huge scale that shows someone like me living my truth authentically through dance. And I went to a school that offered me a full scholarship for a men's scholarship. And I didn't feel like a man. I didn't want to do pot de dough. I didn't want to dance with another woman. I wanted to be a soloist. And I had to cut my hair. I had to buy men's clothing for someone else of how they saw me based off something about the way I was born. So I dropped out of that school and I tell myself, I will not dance until the dancing world changes. And most recently, in the last few years, we had Missy Copeland be the first woman of color to be a lead in the American Ballet Theater, which is the most prestigious ballet company in the world. You just mentioned Missy Copeland. Am I correct? In did I see that you had performed with Missy Copeland before? Yes. So um, when I was 14 years old, um, I had got an opportunity to be on the same stage with her and meet her before she was a principal dancer at American Ballet Theater. And it was for the performance Swan Lake. Something about her just really stood out. And it was probably just her resilience and her laser focus that really inspired me. She knew she deserved to be a lead at that time, but she was part of the company. She's part of, you know, the the swans. She wasn't the actual lead swan. But seeing her so focused in that element was so profound to me. And I remember going up to her And I think this was the second show out of like seven shows. And I was like, you know, I felt a sense of attachment to her because we are both like mixed race women um, who are in the entertainment business. And I asked her, I was like, can I take a photo with you? And she said, no. She said, wait until the last show. At the end of the last show, I would take a photo with you. So at that moment, I didn't understand. You know, I would go up to this guy or that girl and say, can I take a photo with you? I'm a huge fan. This is the biggest show I've ever been a part of. I'm 14 years old. But what stood out to me and what I thought about later was the fame, the photos, the gratification, the autograph didn't mean anything to her. She wanted to say focus because she had seven shows to do. And after the seven shows, that's when she was going to sign that autograph and take that photo. That meant so much to me because she didn't do it for the fame. She didn't do it for the popularity. She did it because she had a purpose and because she wanted to be the lead one day of that swan lake. And now she is. That's powerful to me. We'll be back with more Lena Bloom in our crossover podcast episode with Asian Enough. Here's more of our conversation with Lena Bloom. There's something you had mentioned about, you know, this idea of bringing this full knowledge of your own personal history, your ancestors' history, where your family has come from, bringing that into your everyday and bringing it into the work that you do. But you also mentioned your mother's story, for example, that she was deported when you were very young. And I am curious, like, how did you start that process of learning not just about Filipino history? How did you learn if there were no Filipinos around you earlier in your life? Well, actually, 
the first teacher I had in acting were two Filipino people. And once I met them, I learned about Tajo, Bahay, Barrio, learning about different ways to be creative, but also be, um, be rooted in culture. And that's when I started learning about who I am by these two powerful people. One was a woman, one was a trans man. And um, I got jobs at Filipino restaurants. I learned how to do Kamayan. I learned how to, how to really understand the foods and the textures of the foods and the seasonings of the foods, the musicality and range of our experience and understands that we don't just have straight hair. We have curly hair. We have wavy hair. We are brown skin. We are light skin. We are really a combination of a lot of powerful things in society. Hmm. When people think about deportation, they don't often think it is an Asian American issue. And I think that's partly because of this harmful model minority stereotype, this narrative. But can you talk a little bit about that experience for you, what impact it had on your life and your understanding of that sense of self that you now have? You know, when you lose your mom so suddenly and in that way, how do you feel like you were able to maintain a sense of connection to that side of your family? So my father met my mom when he was stationed in the Philippines at Burak, in Boracay, where there was a Marine base. Subic Bay is actually the place where, um, where he was stationed. And um, to be honest with you, like so many women who live in these countries who don't often have opportunity. Um, she was a woman that was looking for opportunity. She came from General Santos in Mindanao and she went all the way to the Marine base and she was looking for a way out. She fell in love with my father. They loved each other. Um, she moved to America and she had me and um, my mom was deported when I was nine months old. So I really never got a chance to really have a moment with her. But everywhere I went as a child around my family, people will always say, you look like your mother. And I didn't have any Filipino people around me. I didn't have any ates or um, kuyas around me. So I was looking for my tribe, I was looking for the embodiment of the Filipino culture. You know, every time I met a Filipino person, I would ask them where they're from and, you know, can you teach me a word in Tagalog? Like, the first word I learned was maharikita, and that means I love you in Filipino. I got it tattooed on my wrist. And I would always remember, on my wrist, whatever I do, I do with love. And I went to the Philippines when I found my mom for the first time. And we spent six months together. And the trauma bonding that we experienced because of the situations that we are in was truly, it's something I'm still trying to navigate today. The lost time and not knowing who she is, but understanding the environment that she was around to survive. And um, it's just, it's just, I need to really, really stand tall and understand how powerful being Filipino is in this world because we are constantly being erased. We're constantly being hated on. And people don't often see me as a Filipino woman, which really hurts me. But I can tell you that 50% is thick. 
in my blood and I love it to death. And I'm so proud to be Penai blood. And I hope that I can see more representation of us, not just behind the scenes, because that's where they want to keep us at, but front and center. You've mentioned reconnecting with your mom. And um, I'm curious about how you did that, but also when you reconnected with her, like, what were those conversations like? What did you talk about? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was looking for my mom since I was a child. And um, before it was internet, it was a very, very hard. And, you know, you had to get a, a special investigator and giving him like addresses. And this is where she was at last time. And this was the mail she sent me. And one day I was looking on Facebook and I found a page with no photo, but a paragraph, a long paragraph about my mom looking for her two children. And I responded to it. And when I called her, she was at a hair salon. She does hair for a living. She's in the beauty business also. And I called her and I said, hi, is this Sharina? And she was like, yes. And I was like, hi, um, this is your child. I've been looking for you. And she she started bursting into tears in a full collapsing emotional way that she had to say, I cannot, I, can I call you right back? I need to run home. She called me back five minutes later, she was at home. I guess she just ran home as fast as she could because she didn't want anyone to interrupt her. And she was sitting down with both of my half sisters and my brother. And she was like, would you like to FaceTime? And I said, before I FaceTime you, I want to tell you something. I am not the child that you left me. I am much more colorful. She said, you don't have to explain anything. I love you and I already knew. You knew when I was a baby who I am and what I am and what I would go and what I would do and what I would see. That is the power of an Asian culture, of a bloodline, of knowing who you are and knowing how powerful you are and knowing your seed. And when I got on FaceTime with her, I was like looking at myself. We look exactly alike, like everyone said. And we just talked every single day and we spoke. And she was like, I'm going to book you a ticket to come here to see me. And she booked me a ticket to come and see her. And, you know, um, she took me around the Philippines and it was just powerful, you know, to have that experience, to finally find that puzzle piece. This is so beautiful. I'm like weeping over here into my microphone. What did you talk about? Like, what was the first question you, you asked your mom when you two got to sit down? We started talking about her relationship with my father and how they met. And, you know, she told me the story of how she build a home for herself. And at the time, my dad was taking care of us. They were broken up at the time, but she had a car, she had a furnished home. And immigration knocked on her door, took her, put her in a cage, sent her back to the Philippines and just dropped her off like she was trash. And she had to start out over. There was no cell phones, there were no emails, there were no Facebook. She had to figure out how to survive Again, after having two children and being married. So 
It was just, we took it one day at a time. We didn't want to run into everything. We wanted to, I spent six months there. So every day was a different moment to cry, was a different moment to smile, was a different moment to, to make up on old times, you know. But it was also very, um, we were connecting, but it was just very unfamiliar because I'm a grown adult. She's a grown woman. And we are both two adults trying to figure out where we fit at and how can we still, you know, have a loving mother and daughter relationship. So it was just kind of hard because I was already distinguished in who I am. And, you know, um, it was intimidating for her to see me so well off and to be such a trans woman that's so confident in who I am. And in the countries like that, you know, the government does not support trans visibility or gay rights. You know, it's something that you see and you don't talk about. So it was trying to like learn about her, learn about my culture and just take it every single day at a time. And yes, we fought. Yes, we argued. Yes, we went through it. And we had to do that. Mm. Of course. I mean, it makes sense. There's so much less time to make up for, right? Um One thing that really struck us is the word bloom, right? It denotes change, it denotes growth, becoming, and it feels like such an appropriate word to describe how your career has blossomed really in the last few years. To me, there seems to be some sort of like cosmic poetry in that, but does it feel that way to you? Absolutely. Um, Bloom exemplifies something that is connected to my imagination about growing constantly, always challenging myself, never limiting my experience of my creativity. And over the course of my career, I've been kind of stagnant. Sometimes if you don't get enough sunlight, you don't grow. So um, I've been trying to water myself and trying to just keep promoting positive vibrations so I can just bloom as the most beautiful flower the world has ever seen. I love that. So how does one water oneself in a way that can nourish and cultivate in such a way that you have in the last few years? I think it's just understanding that my life is important to me. The lives around me are important to me and the human race is important to me. So that's an ever-growing experience of love and self-love. And I stay grounded in that. I'm an earth sign, so I have to stay grounded in, you know, in realism and like what is honestly who I am and what am I connected to and um, intersections of being African, um, being Asian, being of trans experience, being a woman. There's so many different layers of who I am that makes my story um, unique in a lot of ways. I have to use that and use these amazing things that make me who I am as something to be radical, to be political, and to also to be beautiful. Well, we have one more quick question segment for you, and that is our regular segment, which is called Asian Enough Confessions. It is a a segment where we kind of each share a moment or time or place or something in our lives that made us feel not Asian enough. So I'm going to go first. My confession is one that came up just thinking about the time that you shared that you spent in the Philippines. So I am Japanese-American, but I feel very removed from the culture of my ancestors. And I think all the time about going back to Japan to visit, to, but not just as a tourist, you know. I want to spend time there 
in a way that is nourishing, in a way that gives me, you know, more of a connection to the people that I come from and my family and my history. Um, and it's very intimidating. It's like a very intimidating thought to even try to wrap my head around. So I haven't done it yet, you know, and I do feel bad about that. Um, but even hearing you talk about spending six months there and not like two weeks is very encouraging to me. What about you, Tracy? What is your confession? Uh, mine, um, in honor of, of you, is sort of a, a dance-oriented confession. And it's, I like to think of it as more of like a hopeful Asian enough confession. <laughs> but uh, I'm also Japanese-American. I'm, um, I'm biracial. But uh, I grew up going to summer festivals, like summer Japanese festivals. And part of it, um, at the end, there's, uh, there's like a group dance. Like you go around, there's a taiko drummer. And uh, like as a kid, you're not super self-conscious. So I was totally fine and like mimicking the movements. But I've never really understood like what I was doing. So a couple years ago, I had decided, oh, like I kind of want to like, I'm sure there are community classes I can find that teaches this. And then on the same train, I thought, I'm like, I do want to learn the dances, and I also want to learn how to taiko drum. So I was looking into classes, and then the pandemic happened, so I couldn't do any of it. So my goal is, once we're through, you know, to, to do this. Like, go and learn, like, you know, learn and live my best summer festival life. <laughs> learn the dances and taiko drums. Nice. Girl, get those classes. Mm -hmm. um, that's really, really beautiful. You got to do that. You got to let me know when you start those classes. <laughs> we'll do. So now we're, we'll turn the mic to you, Lena. Do you have an Asian enough confession for us? Yeah. Um, when I first started working in hospitality, I didn't want to just work somewhere that was cool. I wanted to work somewhere where I could learn, where I could be part of an experience, where I could be part of a culture. And this was my first time um, working in a Filipino restaurant. And um, it was actually the first time I worked around so many Filipino people and learning about the different foods and learning about the different balu. And um, I remember learning how to prepare for Kamayan with the banana leaf, with how you carve the rice and how you create a design where you should place this and place that. I think that was probably um, one of the most groundbreaking moments for me as a Filipino woman because food is so important to me and I love food so much. But... I think for me, it wasn't just about the food. It was about the fact that I come from a tradition and come from a people where this is how we congregate together. This is how we talk about family. This is how we talk about politics. This is how we just sit down and talk about us and love. I think that was a truly, truly powerful um, moment for me that I would never forget. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, in and out the beloved burger chain jumps into the COVID-19 wars. Asian Enough is produced by Asala Sanapur and Hibbal Orbani. It's engineered by Mike Heflin. Original music by Andrew Epin and special thanks to Julia Turner. The Asian Enough podcast is dedicated to the memory of founding producer, Lina Anwar. 
The Times is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>